I don't know, so the name of my talk, the title of my talk is The Call of the Entrepreneur. And um, maybe some of you thought I was an artist. I'm not, yeah, I'm wearing crazy jewelry and all that, but um, I'm not an artist. Um, people make that mistake a lot. But I'm an arts administrator. Um, artists and administrators have very different roles, but we're both made to create. Corbin, my example artist here, um, is a painter, and that's how he creates. I create by building community. But Corbin and I also share a theological framework. We are both, we both inform our calls by the cultural mandate. And that's to continue the work of creation through raising families, through planting gardens, through creating beauty, through building institutions, through loving our neighbors, through fighting for justice, and even helping people heal from the trauma of COVID and racial injustice. Some people call us cultural entrepreneurs. I didn't strive to be a cultural entrepreneur, but I knew I had a calling. I was a business major at Covenant College and was taught that there was no dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. Having grown up in the DC area, I wanted to live out my call by working for the federal government as a management analyst. Everyone's an analyst. And I was confident that I could love, I could bring justice and mercy to the federal government. And I didn't have to be in full-time Christian ministry to have a calling. I did that, but my call changed when I married Bill, started having children, and moved to Indianapolis. We chose a family call for the healing of the city. And we extended that call to our children. Rebecca, Susanna, and Michael. Here's the happy family about 15 years ago. I, um, I actually just found this picture on Facebook. You'll find Facebook now. It's like the current post. I, it just kind of came, came up in my memory. So I'm here to embarrass my children once again. But um, this just might illustrate that just because you're exploring a call, with confidence even, it doesn't mean it's easy or painless. Right, uh, Thurman? Um, and so, you know, we, there were hard years. It wasn't easy, painless. Um, we, we had lead poisoning. <laughs> we had the SWAT team for Easter. Um, we met and we sometimes helped a lot of people. Each family member pursued this call in different ways. I had the best commute. So for many years, my world revolved around four blocks which included our home, our kids' activities, and helping start the Oaks Academy in our neighborhood. And then after a few years of living downtown in Indy, our home Bible study grew into Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And amazingly, we got a building within those four blocks. I wanted to leverage that, we wanted to leverage that building to love and serve our neighbors. And it seemed logical to have a food pantry or a thrift store or a soup kitchen. But our neighbors were upset that a church had bought the building. Why? Did you know that churches are bad neighbors? They come into the city, they start a food pantry, they do all this good work, and then they drive back to their beautiful homes and white picket fences in the suburbs, and they leave all the mess behind for the neighbors to deal with. I didn't know we were bad neighbors. I thought we were good people. And so the crazy idea was if we could, 
if um, a way of loving our neighbors would be to start an art center, if that's what the neighbors wanted. They wanted the energy of the arts to kind of balance out the challenge of social services. And so we decided to start an art center, if that's what the neighbors wanted. So I became, became the unlikely executive director of the Harrison Center for the Arts. I can't stress enough how intimidating that call was to run the art center. I didn't have an art background. I'd been to a lot of museums. I like art, but I never thought I'd be in a position where I'd be talking about contemporary art or, yeah, just being out there. That was just really scary for me. But calling didn't trap me in one profession. Calling freed me to enter fully into the changing rules of my life. In this case, I was called to be part of repairing a broken building, repairing a neighborhood, and an art scene. I created, I was a business major, remember that? So I created a simple business plan. Step one was to open a gallery and design it to attract emerging patrons. Emerging patrons are people that like art, they're regular people, they like art, but maybe they're intimidated by the art scene or intimidated by cultural centers. Step two was to turn every vacant space into an artist studio, renting for $100 a month, regardless of size, shape, or smell. Do you like my tagline? <laughs> and, all of, and some of them do smell, actually. <laughs> every room is completely different. And many have what we call texture, and we don't charge any extra for that. <laughs> so this is the old pipe room for the pipe, the, the organ pipes that the organ was in the sanctuary. And the only thing separating the sanctuary from this studio is a velvet curtain. When I showed the artist this space, I said, now on Sundays, you can be at home in bed or in church, buddy. You can't be in your studio. No, you can't make loud noises, you can't play music. The church is gonna be going on. So this is not your typical art center. We leveraged the building's unusual spaces to provide mysterious alternative venues for sound, light, performance art, as well as good old Hoosier basketball. This is the gym. And almost immediately, we attracted scores of emerging patrons, every age, race, and education level. Before COVID, we had an average of 100 people attend a First Friday event each month. With multiple venues, eventually eight galleries, and studios serving 36 artists with 24-7 access, my cell phone was always on, we were never boring and never stuffy. At any point, I could have said, I'm not an educator, I can't start a school, I'm not a pastor, I can't plan a church, I'm not an artist, I cannot start an art center. The calling informed by the cultural mandate gave me the freedom to love my neighbors in ways that went far beyond traditional Christian ministry. And it gave me the passion, the courage, and the perseverance to address my community's needs. I began to understand that I needed to be more than just an arts administrator to carry out my call of running the Arts Center. I needed to take the cultural mandate personally. I needed to be a cultural entrepreneur so that I could see a need take a risk, leverage resources, and invest energy to build culture in my city. I was kind of on a high. I was feeling confident in my call, and even though I was a little bit amazed by the instant success of the Arts Center, an unexpected thing happened. While everyone else was celebrating the 
great job we were doing. One by one, my artists started coming to me and saying, I need to move. I need to leave Indianapolis. I'm like, don't you see all the great parties we're having? Haven't you seen that like, we're one of the most intriguing cultural destinations in Indianapolis? But the artist said to me, we need art patrons. We need to move to big cities where people buy art. I didn't know what to do. I knew that people were starting to buy, buy their first piece of art at the Arts Center, moving from posters to their first painting. And I knew that our sales were growing, but it wasn't enough. It was becoming clear that we needed a new generation of art patrons. About the same time, our neighborhood had a crisis. A historic art museum campus that had turned into a university um, decided it was leaving, and it was leaving behind three abandoned buildings. And this was all adjacent to the Harrison Center. So using the principles of cultural entrepreneurship, we saw the community as an opportunity to serve our community and to honor the art and education history of that site. So we decided to start a school, not just any school, but a high school designed to grow art patrons for world-class citizens. Not only would these art patrons grow a new market for my artists, because hey, I'm a business, I need to sell art, but I also knew that they would serve our city in many ways. We started in the basement of the Harrison Center, and then move the school around the corner on the next year to the, the big campus. Since then, the school has grown into a network of three charter schools around the city. But you need to understand that starting the school was not easy. Politics, money, time were huge constraints. I had never started a public charter school before. My greatest nightmare is humiliation, and I made a lot of very but a sense of calling enabled me to get out of bed. It enabled me to take a risk and to continue the work. When that high school opened its doors, it was not because anybody was smarter than anyone else. It was because we had a sense of call and we didn't give up and persevered. With all the high schoolers close by, interested in engaging in their community, we became more thoughtful about cultural entrepreneurship. We started an internship program, a cultural entrepreneur internship program that taught high school and college kids to see a need, take a risk, leverage resources, invest energy, and network to build culture in the city. This launched us from being building focused to engaging neighbors with creative place making outside of our our cultural entrepreneur program also has a venture fund. I call it an adventure fund. And the very first applicant was Will Lutz. Anybody know Steve Lutz here? Yes. So his, okay, his son, Will. So Will asked for $372 to build three giant puppets. And I looked at him and I said, what community need is this addressing? And Lutz, without skipping a beat, he looked at me and he said, Indianapolis needs Built the giant puppets. He loaded them in his truck. He took them downtown to the to Monument Circle. He brought them out of the truck and set them up. People started streaming out of their office buildings. The media came. Huge success. But you know the best thing that happened that day? It made people really glad they lived in Indianapolis. 
Consider the idea that creating a spectacle of wonder could be living out the cultural mandate. Some interns took on big administrative jobs like planning a 10,000 attendee music festival featuring 12 bands, two stages, continuous music, and over 100 artisans. Another created FoodCon, an unconventional food convention that paired artists, the local food movement, and neighbors together. Others interpreted community need in different ways and repaired broken buildings with Legos. That's one of my favorites. These interns saw a need on a hot day, took a risk, leveraged resources, invested energy, and drove all around the city networking in their pool truck to build culture. Yes, they got pulled over by the police and were told never to do that again. <laughs> but they promised me they had net their networking had blessed a lot of people along the way. Another intern identified a need for relational art. What's relational art? Well, that would be taking your dad's pickup truck, drilling holes in the bed, planting herbs and vegetables, and making regular rounds to the apartment buildings in our neighborhood to let kids touch and taste and harvest. Relational art is supposed to evoke an emotion or a community or a philanthropic response. And it did. If I remember correctly, her dad got really angry. <laughs> and the community really loved and felt more connected to uh, gardening and the local food movement. Well, we had months of gray. One, one year we had three months of solid snow. Um, the interns gave the community a gift of color by painting the snow. I encourage these small creative acts because of, of my understanding that we're called to create beauty and we're called to love our neighbors. Many of our immigrants have gone on to invest the same creativity into serving immigrants, into working for social justice, and more. We teach all these, these interns, it's okay to fail, it's okay to fall, it's okay to make mistakes. Susanna got a few bumps and bruises when she was figuring out this levitation photo. Okay, so we train cultural entrepreneurs to see a need. That means they practice pinpointing and articulating needs in the community. We encourage them to assess and take risks. And yes, it's true. I make sure every single one of their internships are scary. Just a little bit. We, um, we help them understand that leveraging resources helps them become good stewards of the assets already in the community. And we stress that a cultural entrepreneur invests energy. What that means is they need to be committed to their work and they need to work really hard. We give them networking experience, not to build their own little black book, but so that more people, they can know more people, so they can bless more people. Here's an example. Our city got a large federal grant to stabilize neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods that had a lot of abandoned housing. Uh, we looked at this map in Indianapolis to determine the need. Well, Indianapolis had a healthy downtown core. It had another side. This slide tells that story. This is a story that broken neighborhoods that surround downtown. Every dot on this map represents an abandoned property. And every dot has an effect on public safety, on education, on social justice, on our tax base, 
and on the cultural health of our city. We wondered if we could use the power of art to address this problem. We happened to have our own abandoned building on our campus, and so we took it, we modeled it, and we partnered with the city and local community development corporations to focus on five neighborhoods. And this new program was called the City Gallery, um, Indies Urban Living Center. And the City Gallery is a gallery that shows art, that celebrates place. Art that tells stories of place, art that celebrates urban indie, and artists have many ways to do that. We also provided concierge services. So for the first five years of the program, we had a live human that could help connect, imagine that, a live human, <laughs> to help connect people to culture, community, and place, to strengthen those five neighborhoods. The concierge could tell you when your neighborhood association met, they could tell you how to find a realtor. They could connect you to a rental. They could get you invited to somebody's house for a porch party, for a city supper, or a cookout. They could advise on schools and other amenities. Um, kind of a welcome wagon for the city. The City Gallery also hosted artist residencies, um, our foray into writing music to celebrate those challenged neighborhoods. And so we have a 48-hour residency, which is targeted for traveling musicians, and um, we host them in Indy for 48 hours. The first 24 hours, they explore Indy. The second 24 hours, actually when they explore it, they see what I want them to see, by the way. <laughs> and then the second 24 hours, they actually write a song and record it, celebrating our city. In the last 10 years, we've written over 300 songs about urban Indy. But I just found out we don't have a Valentine song. I just found that out on my staff today. <laughs> Um, so we also have a 10-week residency, and that's for more ambitious projects. So this project by Paul Smallman, one of Herman's friends, um, he wrote, did, wrote a song a week celebrating our neighborhood. I first asked him to do it, he was a college student, he said, well, I can write about girlfriends, but I don't know if I can write about Indianapolis. <laughs> and then he realized that Sufjan Stevens wrote about, uh, Stevens wrote about Michigan, so he figured it was cool enough, so he started doing places. <laughs> Um, but we decided in one of our more ambitious residencies to start writing hip-hop arettas. So I'm going to... Feel 
people loved the work that we did, and free flower Fridays were a big hit. Um, and our work was considered a success by the city, but not everyone felt that way. So this photo actually documents that in a neighborhood full of vacant buildings, we couldn't get permission to use one. And so we had to build our own vacant building. <laughs> okay, so we patted ourselves on the back of persevering, but I began to sense that something wasn't right. The long-term neighbors were afraid, and that didn't make any sense to me, because while it was um, a historically underserved neighborhood, the neighbors actually owned their home, had a high homeownership rate, and were financially stable. And so they weren't afraid, what I learned was that they weren't afraid of economic gentrification, they were afraid of cultural gentrification. Do you know the distinction? This is something I've learned. So economic gentrification where people feel pushed out because of higher taxes or um, finances. But cultural gentrification is when people feel like their stories are being erased, when they feel like they are strangers in their own community, that their culture is gone. And so that vitality that we were creating was actually hurting them, not helping them. So we began to ask, how do you create a revitalized neighborhood where everyone can benefit, where long-term neighbors are where new residents don't see themselves as pioneers moving into a blank slate, but as part of an existing story? We changed the focus of our work to using the power of art to know and love people. And here's our first attempt at that. That song was by Nabil Ince, Erwin Ince's son, Erwin Ince's son uh, who's done several residences with us. 
So we continued thinking about being inclusive and what that meant for our, to our neighborhood work. This led us to ask, how do you revitalize a neighborhood in a way that practices justice and mercy? How do you create a neighborhood where everyone is known and loved? We looked across the country for models, we couldn't find them. We weren't sure that anybody had figured it out. We wanted to figure this out soon because we knew that market forces were coming and that it would bring both economic gentrification and cultural gentrification. Since we didn't know how to accomplish it, we wondered if theater could envision it for us, if they could act out the end result for us. So you're familiar with the idea of reenactment, like when you act out the past. Well, our neighbors were always talking about the good old days. For a half second, I thought, oh, we should just do a big reenactment of the past. But I realized what happened in the past, the injustices were so much worse than they are today. So really, there weren't any good old days. So we needed a new form of theater. And we came up with the idea of a pre-enactment to act out a world that ought to be, to act out a world of justice and mercy. And so we created a one-day event, a one-day performance called Pre-Enactivity, and the purpose was to provide a site-specific, interactive um, event, kind of like going to a living history museum where you get to talk to the actors, that would act out a world that ought to be, where there would be justice and economic vitality for all. Since we're doing theater, we needed a stage. This is our stage, a three-block blighted commercial strip. Every abandoned lot, every vacant lot, every existing business, which there were three, um, every sidewalk and every driving lane was part of that stage. We needed a script, so we interviewed the neighbors and we asked them for their hopes and dreams, which became the basis for the script. The partnerships grew, and ultimately over 12 theater companies, the best in town, um, three schools and 30 neighborhood organizations participated in this community visioning tool. It was an incredibly ambitious undertaking. Here is one of the early drafts of our stage plan detailing what was happening on each property and each step, step along those three blocks. I don't expect you to be able to read this. I want you to see potential chaos. <laughs> there was a lot going on. We continued planning, we gave neighborhood history tours for neighbors, students, and artists to learn the African-American story of the neighborhood. The set designers built 11 temporary buildings on the vacant lots, including a theater, a welcome center, a bakery, a variety store, a barber shop, and restaurants. They also activated the vacant buildings. All this was based on the neighbors' hopes and dreams. And then another problem. A business got excited about, start, uh, about painting a mural, and I drove by, and I got a lump in my throat, and I saw this blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman dominating the wall in a historically African-American neighborhood. I called the owner, and I said, hey, thanks so much for bringing art to the neighborhood. Uh, I'm just wondering, are you going to have a person of color on that mural, too? And he said, oh, it's just art. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I didn't tell him to change the mural. I just told him how people felt. The design had already been approved by the city. The artist had left town. But two days later, he had darkened the girl's hair. He had darkened her skin. The name of the restaurant was Greek, so you're like, does she look Greek? You know, I'm not quite sure. Um, all I had to do was invite him to consider another point of view and tell him how people felt. A year later, he added this. The mural changes were ultimately not about beautifying a building, 
but they're about heart change and they're about loving neighbors. The big day came. One of the most shocking things was to see people walking down the sidewalks. This is a neighborhood that never had side, never had pedestrian traffic, not for years. Every step was activated. Speaker's Corner included speeches by residents, politicians, this is our congressman, spoken word artists, and school children. We cared about the details that the neighbors cared about. In their hopes and dreams, they asked for neighborhood basketball at every street corner. Why? Because in a gentrified neighborhood, you don't see basketball. Right. Basketball became part of the script. We opened the doors of the Dunbar Branch Library, the first library in the African-American neighborhood in Indianapolis. This had been long closed. The door was covered with vines. Nobody even knew that what it was there. I was just like, oh, there's a big building. You can do something fun with it. What is it? Oh my goodness, when I found out the history of that site. So we turned it into a neighborhood history center for the day. We collected stories and honored long-term residents that had gotten their first library card there. These stories were turned into scripts for the next year's reenactment. We replaced fast food uh, advertising, which preyed on the neighborhood, with billboards showcasing art that celebrated the neighborhood story. We celebrated the stories of the long-term residents, a group we call the Great Triarchs. Not matriarchs, not patriarchs, the Great Triarchs. It's gender neutral, we're so cool. <laughs> we got to know these Great Triarchs through fortune with them. Our Great Triarch program now has 25 long-term residents who have each been honored with a large painting. These are four by six foot paintings that hang along 16th Street. And it is growing, we do six a year. But our math is not good, so there's one extra. <laughs> um, these, the great charts, um, come to the Harrison Center for art classes, and we have fellowship um, times once a month, and we do um, a little bit of filmmaking. Um, but they have, the Harrison Center has become a second home for them, and they bring their family, even during COVID, they've been kind of um, breaking out recently. We revitalize neighborhood murals. Even the church on the street paid a part, played a part by having a vow renewal. So the pastor and his first lady actually were celebrating their 30th wedding anniversary. And so we worked that into the script. And so we ended the program. The program was from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. At 5 p.m., they drove across 16th Street in a limo, and we all stood on the, on the um, sidewalks and waved to them. And that was the end. So I'm going to play the reenactment video.
So our this call compels us to love our neighbors. We did Korean activity for three years until COVID hit, and it's been amazing to me what the power of art can do. While market courses did hit and did take over the neighborhood, I mean, gentrification is happening, it seems to have been softened by the vision casting and the direct conversations we had with new neighbors and businesses. We cast a vision through art, music, and theater for living, for living wage jobs, affordable housing, workforce housing, black-owned businesses like a bakery, black barbers, um, new businesses employing neighbors, an art center run by people of color, serving people of color. These are all happening. Crazy. They're all happening. For the new businesses and the new residents, we're working hard to invite them into the existing neighborhood story and to honor the people who come before them. 400 new homes have been built. That's a lot of new residents. So it's hard, but the response we've had from our work has been positive and promising, but there is still lots of hard work ahead. It's a broken world, folks, but um, there is some justice. By 2020, we had practiced many ways that a cultural entrepreneur can see needs, take risks, leverage resources, invest energy, network, build culture. But COVID brought challenges we had never considered. COVID taught us that a cultural entrepreneur isn't afraid of constraints. We had no choice. <laughs> we had constraints, so we just had to embrace them. Um, we learned that we could be a lot more creative when we had constraints. So we created a whole new practice of art called social distance art to fight the trauma and social isolation in isolation COVID. The first thing we did was a um, COVID pinata, and we just beat it to them. <laughs> All right, the first question we had was, what is social distancing? That was not a term that we had used before. And the first time I heard it was in March of 2020, and there was a hula hoop in my office. And I put it on, and I said to my entrance, Stay away from me. I'm social distancing. <laughs> so we took that idea and we commissioned 10 social distance hoop sculptures to model social distancing as we walked around our neighborhood and maybe add a little bit of spectacle of wonder for those looking out of their windows, afraid to, looking from their windows, afraid to venture outside. Then we added fairy lights for night walks and maybe a little music video for social media. Community, the broader 
broader community loved um, our creativity. I mean, they had nothing else, right? We were all we had, all they had. So when things opened in 2021, um, we were invited to be in a parade or two. Loving the Great Sharks during COVID was a big challenge and a priority. We partnered with Redeemer's Deacon Team and Congregation to deliver meals. And then we partnered with interns who did remote and social distance into residencies in 2020 for other deliveries. This is Miss Shirley receiving a scone by drone. Did you get that? Scones by drone. We actually rode our drone. They were not engineered to carry scones. <laughs> um, and recently, get a little stir crazy and so we started featuring great tracks one at a time for a social distance uh, storytelling drawing session so art centers often drawing sessions but what we're doing here is we're having the great tracks model and tell their story mr larry lived under a bridge for 27 years he came back from faith he's now married he got married a year ago um, and has been drug free for at least five years um, the artists practice their technical skills but more importantly, they're listening skills. And they're learning how to use their art to know and love people. Like many of you, we sewed masks for medical workers, but we made a few extra ones just for ourselves. When it wasn't safe for people in our building, we delivered quarantine bags full of art supplies and reading materials. We even included paper doll books that, had, that featured our artists and our neighbors. COVID started when we were about the time that we would normally kick off our porching season. And we realized we couldn't do normal porching, but we also knew that the community needed porching more than ever. And so we invented social distance porching. So people had lost the rhythm of uh, going to work and coming home. Some people lost their jobs. And so we invited our neighbors to get up from their couches every day at five, go out to their porch, their front yard, or stoop their balcony, and practice their hay neighbor wave. We sent a photographer out to patch her social distance porching across the city. She documented 100 home houses all doing it differently. Everyone had a different personality. This was my luck. Maybe. So we were looking for creative ways to deliver 
experiences to them. To help them process, mourn, laugh, cry, we created a window walk. We commissioned artists to decorate 23 sidewalk level windows and we changed the theme every three months covering COVID, social justice, hope, and Christmas. COVID gave us a time and opportunity to provide COVID safe improvements to our building. We reached, we restored our 100 year old smokestack and re reinvented it as safe public art by placing a smoke machine, a furnace, and a fan in the base and an LED, LED light at the top. So we can now have colored smoke just by operating a remote. Whatever the occasion, a new pope, the Colts winning the game, or just to celebrate our community. It's safe public art that people can see from a distance. And so here's a picture we did. You can see the coronavirus um, projection on the side of the sanctuary. And then you can see the smokestack light installation. And that, I'm sorry, I took that video. We have a much better one on our video page if anybody wants to see that. We made fresh air additions, a new front porch for the city alley with sliding glass doors, so giving us an indoor fresh air space too. Um, and the porch started to be used in 2021 for porch parties and concerts and other events. It's kind of crazy. This is actually a COVID pick, but it doesn't look like COVID. It really was COVID. Um, we hadn't thought about our roof before, so but we did. We added a new sky deck, about twice the size of this photo, with LED tetherball. Um, the furniture arrives in March, so I hope you'll come for a visit. Okay, this was not a COVID safe improvement, but I just had to do it. During construction, we turned an extra staircase into a slide for kids and kids at heart. Might as well. We were running out of money, so we needed one more thing, just one thing that would serve dogs, children, and adults at the same time. Or the same thing that would serve all three, yeah. So we came up with a human hamster wheel, public art that doesn't discriminate on who runs on it. By the way, it's kind of dangerous. <laughs> so Bristol tweet you. <laughs> Finally, um, we have never been able to afford an elevator, but a new art grant gave us the opportunity. While just a basic elevator wouldn't have qualified for the grant, we pitched an art project, a karaoke elevator. Thirty-three thousand songs to choose from. Okay, it sounds like a beautiful story. We've accomplished a lot, and we've created a lot of beauty. But during COVID, we became more awakened to the issues of racial justice and racial injustice. I'm the type of cultural entrepreneur that wants to dive in, lead, solve problems. Instead, I realized listening and learning is part of my calling now. We're also discerning the relationship between power and equity. And as we move forward, we're seeking to lead by sharing our resources with leaders of color so that they can be more effective in their own calls. This is hard, because I like to do everything. A calling informed by the cultural mandate gives us the freedom to soar as cultural entrepreneurs, to see the need to continue the work of creation, to take risks and to be confident in your call, to leverage resources by being good stewards, to invest energy because you're not discouraged in your work, to network not for yourselves, but to bless others, and to see constraints as opportunities. Today I'm wondering what kind of movement cultural entrepreneurs with beautiful orthodoxy can build. It's early in the conference, but this is what I hope. I think it would be a movement of the best listeners and learners, the bravest, 
of the most humble cultural tumors, the most compelling startups and church plants, the most beautiful and challenging art, and the most redemptive churches, businesses, and projects. I'm looking forward to learning this week with you. Thank you.